Good afternoon. This is Father Toby live from London with your word for today. And I want to share with you my uh, now extended reflection on uh, uh, yesterday's readings at Mass. Um, and uh, I want to share with you a section of John's, of John's Gospel uh, and the part that I'm going to dwell on in our, in our reflections. John in his prison had heard what Christ was doing, and he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or have we got to wait for someone else? Jesus answered, Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind see again and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And happy is the man who does not lose faith in me. Our feelings and emotions affect our thinking and our decisions. The way my body feels and the way I behave are not divorced from one another. Perhaps the most powerful example for me of how hunger can influence my decision making is when I walk into a poundland hungry Never do I exit with just the toiletries or whatever it, else it was I went in there to get. The basket ends up looking like a dentist's dream or nightmare, depending on how much she values repeat customers. Or sometimes when a child is behaving badly, you'll hear a parent say, oh, excuse him, he didn't sleep well last night. And perhaps the most patronizing but also true line that's ever uttered to a child behaving badly is, I think somebody's probably overtired. That line would wind me up so much. What does it even mean, overtired? How can you be overtired? That's not a thing I would protest. And yet in the protest sometimes prove the truth of it. And now I have to admit, I think there's something in it. But the point is that our emotions have a big effect on us. And our emotions are easily stirred. What seemed like the end of the world can take on a different complexion after a good night's sleep. The enormity of the task in the day ahead can be magnified by a headache. And one reason for mentioning all of this is that I think it helps us enter into the world of John the Baptist in prison a little better. Because just last week we heard John exalting Jesus, declaring his might, and yet this week we hear of him in prison, doubting who Jesus is. John sending his disciples to question Jesus. Are you who I thought you were? This can be both a consolation to us and a warning. A consolation that someone as great as John the Baptist experienced doubts. And a warning of how hardship and difficulty can affect the clarity of our thoughts and the need to have some constancy in the change in the face of my changing feelings and emotions. Now, I doubt many of us know the hardship of unjust imprisonment, and particularly not the sort of prison John would have been in, but we'll have known injustices nonetheless, and we'll have asked questions, no doubt. And perhaps those questions were sometimes about the goodness and the love of God for me. And so we can look back at our moments of doubt, or perhaps even our current doubts, and not feel ashamed or alone in them. 
but we can also be aware of how things other than the truth of things can affect my thinking. And in this way, we can remember that whatever hardship we're currently going through will probably not last forever, and nor will the way it seems to be rocking my faith. Because faith, like love, has to be bigger than feelings. Now, all of this might be a long way of expressing the Snickers advert slogan, Snickers, because you're not yourself when you're hungry. Maybe that's why the advertisers get paid so much more than me. They can put into a couple of lines what it's taken me about six minutes to say. But it's also the case that we don't want to be like this. We don't want to have what should be the foundational truths in our life, the love of God, the love of our family and our friends, and the way and the intensity with which we live out the truth of these loves. We don't want to have these things be subject to whatever feelings or tiredness or hunger I currently have going on. I'm sure we'd all like our love to be more constant than our feelings. Now, the point of this reflection is not to tell you to suppress your feelings or to deny their importance, but it is to try and put them in their proper place. There should be a hierarchy of intellect over feeling. If not, our intellect won't disappear, but it will simply be put at the service of our feelings, sometimes ingeniously. But our feelings are not geared up to direct us towards ultimate truths, towards the greatest goods, in the same way that our intellect is. There is so much more to each of us than our feelings, and so our feelings shouldn't be elevated to a level of importance they don't merit. The very fact that we can be aware of our feelings, that we can think about them, examine them, reflect upon them, show that my feelings are not the totality of me, despite the trend in some places to say that they are. Because in some parts of society, the idea of safe spaces, of trigger warnings, suggests a mindset that my feelings about something are more important than the truth about the something. But ask yourself, would you be happy living a delusion? The truth matters. It's why there's an instinct to listen into a conversation where we hear our name mentioned, even if we know we might not like what we hear. It's why we hate the idea that our politicians might be lying to us. Jesus says the truth will set you free. I think we get that. I think we know that there is no freedom in delusion. But to be truly free also requires that I be subject to truth and not to my feelings. There are two basic dispositions in life. The recognition that the truth has a certain claim on me as a being made for truth that desires truth. Or the disposition that says, my truth, and makes gods of ourselves, whether we choose to call ourselves gods or not. The Christian recognition that truth is unchanging and personal, but that there is a constant battle going on within me against my desire to live my truth of the moment, is why the church encourages us to have periods of fasting in our life, 
It's a part of why Friday is a compulsory day of abstinence from meat. Christian fasting has a dual purpose. It's a way for us to show what we love the most and to train us and help us to better love what we claim to love the most. We might not think of fasting as being a display of what we love. We might think of it as being more giving up what we love. But let's use a simple example to see how that's not strictly true. When you take the religious element out of fasting, what you have is a diet. Now, a diet isn't a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing. This is the sort of line when you're preaching that you most definitely don't want to make eye contact with anyone. The beauty of radio is I don't have that problem. It's the listener down the road I'm talking to about diets. Not you. Not you. You're in great shape. But a healthy diet says that I love the health of my body more than I love whatever pleasure I might get from foods or from the amount of food that would make me unhealthy. A diet is about prioritizing things I love and recognizing I can't have it all. Yet you can be nice and slim, be eating a healthy diet, and there still be a role for fasting as a Christian. Christian fasting is not just for the overweight. We fast so that we can say, Lord, I give this up today or this week or during this period of Advent or Lent because you are the most important thing. We are saying to God that we can be happy without this particular worldly pleasure because God is the ultimate source of all that is good and that everything else is just a reflection of his goodness. Fasting is a little bit like stopping looking at the pictures for a while in order to spend more time looking at the artist. It's just like expressing gratitude to the artist unconditionally for a while. But I also fast so that I do not just say that line, that God is our greatest good, but live that line, so that I might love God above all things, and that I might love my neighbor as I love myself. It's easy to sing, and I would do anything for love but it's harder to do it. Incidentally, that's the second time I've quoted meatloaf in a homily within a space of five days. I probably need to get more hip with my music. But fasting teaches us to put our money where our mouth is. If I say I love my family above all things, then I cannot be controlled by my, by my other appetites and by my feelings. I cannot say that I'll be home as soon to them as possible after work and then not do that because I find myself pulled in by the pub or the kebab shop on the way home. I cannot properly love them if when I've had a really rough day at work, I take it out on them. I need to be able to love and to trust them. I need to be able to love and to trust God even when, especially when other things are hard in my life right now. And so I fast so that I can practice in a voluntary way, loving a little better when I'm hungry or tired, or forgoing my normal entertainment. I practice giving up good things for the sake of something better in a voluntary way, so that I can still love well when the difficult circumstances are thrust upon me. Fasting is training for love. 
The fasting of Christ in the desert and his refusal to betray his love for his Father in heaven in exchange for all the earthly comforts the devil was offering him is not unconnected from his ability to love us from the cross, to not give up loving us even when it hurt. But fasting is not only about bodily pleasures. There are holds over our behavior that can be just as strong as food, drugs, alcohol, and sex. For many of us, I imagine that the fasting that we really need to engage in in order to love better is to fast from our phones and from other forms of distraction and entertainment. I was reading an article in the paper yesterday of a couple describing a blind date. One thing the woman said she really liked when she arrived and met the man was that he was not immersed in something on his phone, but was sitting, waiting, looking for her. Perhaps more of the context of our lives needs to be waiting for, looking for, and being truly attentive to the ones that we love, lest the ones that we love start to look like a distraction from our phones. Is it the case that the moment I get any time to myself, my reaction is to immediately whip out my phone? Is it the case that when somebody leaves the table in a cafe or restaurant, I immediately go on my phone? Because then the question starts to become, who or what do my actions say I really love? Meatloaf sang, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. It would be a sad situation if the that for us, if the thing we wouldn't do for love is to put down or even better to put away our phones just for an hour or two. A challenge for you now. Turn off your phone. Turn it off for 30 minutes. If the thought of that, if the thought of that makes you tense, if a thousand and one reasons come to mind as to why I shouldn't, they certainly come to mind for me. We can ask ourselves, how free does my phone make me, and who is the master of who? And then we might remember that Jesus told us, a man cannot have two masters.